0: Hopefully you're still in Colossians chapter 1 this morning. That's going to be uh, our text that we're going to be working our way uh, through today. So if you already closed that up, we'll get your Bible back out, and we're going to be going through that uh, together uh, this morning. But um, as, you're, as you're turning there, as you're finding that, I was wondering, especially after last night, do we still have any college football fans in the room? A couple of of you chuckling because you realized that last night was really not college football. That was more of a public uh, execution or a massacre, I guess. But um, I like sports. I like sports a lot. Sometimes I think that I like them a little bit too much, if you know what I mean. Uh, you can either say amen to that or you can say oh me because you're kind of in the same boat um, as I am. But I really like college football a lot better than I do pro football. But really, the only thing that really irks me about college football is that I kind of get tired of it only being like the same two or three teams every single year. I mean, it's like, if you, it's, it's always Alabama number one, or Clemson number one, and NFL is even worse. Like, I feel like now the NFL, like the commissioner sits down with all of the team owners every year and says, look, we realize that it's kind of a fixed deal. We realize, that let's just go ahead and play this season out just to see who gets to get beat by the Patriots in the Super Bowl, you know, like almost every single stinking season it, that, that goes on, all right? So it kind of annoys me when there's like these powerhouses that just always seem to win. Except in one sport that you can't guess what that is. In basketball, I love it when there's only one good team. You want to know why? Because that team is my team. When Kentucky, Kentucky basketball, baby, that is like the, it's like the bluest of blue bloods in college basketball. Every year it just seems like we're in the running for the preseason number one. When the polls come out. Kentucky number one or that devil team uh, that we won't mention, that other devil team number one. You know, for, for me, when my team is first place, when my team is on top, when my team is top dog, everything else just seems to make sense in the college basketball world. I don't care about fairness at that point. Why? Because it's my team. Because when my team is in first place, everything falls in the proper order. Last Sunday, we began a series through this little tiny letter ...that Paul wrote from prison to a a, a town in in Asia Minor known as Colossae. And this letter is small, but don't let the size of it fool you. While it may be small in size, it takes on a massive subject. And that subject is the preeminence of Jesus Christ. That he is the ultimate, all-time, number one seed. And that because of that, when Jesus is kept number one in our churches... When Jesus is kept number one in our lives, in our homes, in our jobs, even in our hobbies, when Jesus is kept number one in everything, just like that, everything begins to fall into order. Just like I was explaining there, when your team is number one, it seems like everything is just working out as it should be. But Jesus is number one. He's the all-time undisputed number one. And Paul is saying this to the church. When Jesus is preeminent... Everything else will begin to fall into place Because I don't know if you've heard this But at other churches I hear that sometimes churches have problems Do you hear about that? Sometimes churches have disagreements Or they have things going like that And so what Paul says is when Jesus is preeminent All things begin to fall into place When Jesus is number one in your life It begins to make sense and you find a purpose When Jesus is number one in your marriage and in your home It begins to fulfill you in ways that you had never imagined a marriage to do And when Jesus is number one in your home, your home begins to glorify God. It begins to be a testimony to the neighborhood and to the world and even to the nations of what the the bride of Christ, the picture of the church and the bride looks like. When Jesus is number one in the church, it begins to have a spirit that is undeniably different and undeniably unified and more relevant to the world than anything else that's out there. It becomes more real and more relevant. It becomes an unstoppable force of grace and hope. How do I know that? I read this book called the Bible, and in the Bible, it says that the church, the early church, God used them to turn the world upside down for Christ. So last week, what we looked at, we talked about the fact that Paul never actually went to Colossae. He's in prison. He actually never went to help plant that church. He never made it there in one of his missionary journeys. One of his friends by the name of Epaphras brought the gospel to Colossae. He preached the gospel first there. It was mostly a Gentile area. There were some Jew, people with Jewish background living in that area too, but mostly Gentiles. Mostly people who didn't know anything about the Jewish faith, knew nothing about the Bible or the Old Testament law. So when Epaphras came into the city preaching Jesus, this was all brand new to them. Colossae was tucked away in this little valley there, and they were part of the Roman Empire. And by that time, the Roman Empire was growing to such a vast size that it was really becoming hard to kind of force everybody into Roman culture. So what they had done is they loosened their grip a little bit culturally so that they could keep their power politically. And that also meant that they loosened their grip on religion, too. See, Rome was more into ancestor worship, and they worshipped the gods. matter of fact, all of our planets in the solar system are named after the Roman gods. Um, So they worshipped all these gods, but they realized that as they spread into Asia and as they spread into Europe, they realized that 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 those people did not hold those same religious beliefs So here's what they said They came up with two rules about religion in the Roman Empire They said, you can worship any God that you want to As a Roman citizen Any God that you want to You want to keep your God, you can keep your God And that was kind of like a -A Build-A-Bear theology, right? They kind of said, hey, we've got this vast empire This vast uh, cultural influence And so here's what you can do You can pull from any religious philosophy Any God you want to it's kind of like going in to build a bear. I can build whatever bear I want to. I can accessorize it the way I want to. I can create my God in my own image or in whatever image fit, fits me, and everything will be fine. And that attitude began to kind of seep into the Colossian church, who were moving from that first generation of believers that were completely just, just – just, I mean, were uppercut by the gospel, and that's all that mattered to them. As they moved into the second generation, they began to think, you know what? Maybe we need to add something to this to keep this thing going. And so the problem with the Colossian church was not that they had rejected Jesus. They never rejected Jesus. They continued to preach Jesus. They just said, Jesus and something. They said, hey, we worship Jesus and we embrace these other things to supply whatever Jesus might be lacking or not providing or not able to do. Paul knew that when you add to Jesus, you lose your dependence on him. Think about that. When you add to Jesus, you then lose your dependence on him because then things become just as important as Christ. So then you have Jesus to hold on to, but then you have all this other stuff that you have to hold on to and hold sacred too. But The Bible says that the only thing we cannot lose is Jesus Christ. We can lose everything else, but if we keep Jesus, we're still secure for salvation. But if we lose our dependence on him, eventually we lose our reason to follow him. And the big idea of the message this morning is simply this, is that no one and no thing can come before or beside Jesus Christ. If we are to truly worship God and if we are to, tr- to stay biblically sound and practically sound in our theology and in our livelihood and in our practice, nothing and no one can come before or beside Jesus Christ. Today I want to look at three truths Three points and three questions. That's basically the outline this morning. Pretty practical outline today. So as we look into the word of God this morning, let's look at verse number 15. We're going to pull out three truths uh, from the passage this morning. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of every creature, or the firstborn, your translation may say, over all creation. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created, help me out here church By him and for him So what does that mean? That passage, all things were created by him and for him Well the first thing, the first point that we pull from this The first truth is that Jesus is God That's what this is telling us: That Jesus is God And, and, And here's the logic that we follow here The only uncreated thing is God, right? Genesis 1 tells us In the beginning, God So when everything began, there was God. God was there at the beginning. It also implies he was there before the beginning. God just always has been. And in my finite mind, that is hard to completely grasp. I hope it's hard for you to grasp too, because that would mean that your mind is is equally as finite as mine. Right? God has always existed. He's the uncreated one. No one created God. Well, here's what the word is saying. So that if God is uncreated, and if all things, as the Bible says, were were created by Jesus... And Jesus was himself created Then Jesus would have to create himself Which is impossible So the fact that Jesus created everything Means that Jesus is uncreated Which means that he is God Can we say that again? Okay, let's catch this again Think about this God is the only uncreated thing And the Bible says right here in our text That all things that were created Were created by who? By Jesus And Jesus If Jesus was himself created Then Jesus would have had to create himself Which is impossible to do You can't just create yourself. So the fact that Jesus created everything means that Jesus had to have been created before everything was created, which means that he is the God that was in the beginning in verse number one of the entire Bible. So Jesus is God. People get hung up on that word firstborn. It kind of catches some people up a little bit because when we hear the word firstborn, it usually to us means it's the first thing that's been created. And so they look at that word, firstborn, and say, well, there it is. Jesus was just the first thing that God ever created. Before he created the angels, before he created man, before he created the cosmos, Jesus was created. No, that's not what firstborn is saying. But when we hear that, that's what we think. Kind of like, you know, Natalie is our firstborn. So Natalie is the first human that Stacy and I ever created in our marriage. Right? And I don't mean that to be too graphic or anything, but I'm just saying, okay? Um, so in 2004, Natalie didn't exist In 2005, she did I just scarred her for life this morning right? Right. So to say that my kid is my firstborn, is firstborn But firstborn here in this passage Actually means first in position The Greek word that is translated to firstborn Here in our, in our, uh, in our text, in the English text Is where we get our word for prototype now, If you know what a prototype is It's the template, it's the model By which everything else follows So what he's saying is Jesus is the template and the model by which everything else has been created, and he is also the reason for which everything has been created as well. So a couple of verses down, you're going to see that word again, firstborn from the dead. And you might be thinking, hold on for a second. There were other people that were raised from the dead before Jesus was raised from the dead in Scripture. You're absolutely right. But no one was raised from the dead without Jesus' power. No resurrection took place in the Bible without the power of God coming upon them. So Jesus is therefore the template. He's the prototype for resurrection. When we die and when we have hope of heaven that we will be raised again to new life, Jesus is the prototype. He's the one through which, through which we have that resurrection. When we look forward to heaven, it's because of Jesus, not because of us. A lot of times we say, hey, I'm going to heaven because I got saved. That's true, but let's not put too much emphasis on what we did We're going to heaven because Jesus is the prototype of resurrection, and he is our life. He just made it through his grace and mercy available for us to receive salvation. So verses 15 through 16 tell us that Jesus is God, that he's the only God, and that there is no other God. Now, what kind of problem do you think that posed for the Colossians back then in that culture? What kind of problem do you think that poses for our culture today? To say that Jesus is God and there is no other God but Jesus? Remember what the Romans said? Worship any God you want to. Worship Jesus if you want to. Just don't tell us that Jesus is the only God. If you do, you're gonna get in trouble. And guess what happened to Paul? Where's he writing this letter from? From jail. Why is he there? Because he preached that Jesus is the only God. He preached the same thing he's writing in Colossians. He preached that all over the world, that Jesus is preeminent. And he's preeminent over all things. I love what Pastor J.D. Greer says about the preeminence of Christ and about his being, his being deity and how it affects our culture. He says this: Muslims, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and a lot of others teach that Jesus was a great man, a great moral teacher, but they react strongly and sometimes even violently when you say that Jesus is God. You want to know why that happens? Because there's something inherently threatening about Jesus being divine. Because if Jesus is a created being, maybe even a super strong being, a super wise being. Then you can just look at him as being a dispenser of good moral advice And you can put him alongside all the other great religious leaders that have ever lived But if he's God, then the rules are altogether different It means that he becomes the center of everything And that everything else is measured by him If Jesus is God, he's the center of it all If Jesus is God, he becomes the reason for which we live And he becomes the target that we chase in life So many times we chase after other things Why? Because Jesus ceases to be preeminent. Oh, he might be important, but we place other things right up there equal with him. So the first truth that we pull out of that is Jesus is God. The second thing that we pull out of this is that we're created by Jesus and for Jesus. Verse number 16 again. And all things were created by him, and all things were created for him. See, you and I are included in this truth. It's not just talking about the trees and the stars and the animals and all you and I. Individually included in this truth All things Derek Holmes was created By him and for him Insert your name right there Insert your household Insert this church name right there All things are created by him And for him Ask yourself this question and honestly answer it Biblically why was I created Because it's really easy to lose our compass in life Sometimes it's really easy to think that life is just About filling the blank you and I were created for more than just our families, and I don't, mean to, I don't mean to diminish that at all, but you and I were created for more than our families. You and I were created for more than our jobs. You and I were created for more than just these individual things in our lives. I was created for more than Graceway Baptist Church. I was created by Jesus for Jesus, and the only way that I will find fulfillment in my life When my primary purpose becomes Knowing him, discovering him And living out his will And the only fulfillment we'll find is when we know him And live out his purpose Same thing for any one of us That's why there's so many people today that just can't figure out life I'm trying to identify with this or I'm trying to be fulfilled by that It's only through Jesus that we're designed to find Our fulfillment Everything in heaven, everything under heaven Everything above heaven Everything that encompasses everything Was created by him and for him. So he's God. We're created for him. But guess what? You know the story. We didn't live like we created for him and we wanted to push against him. So what did he do? He lowered the hammer of judgment, right? Well, there's judgment coming, but he also made a way to redeem creation. That same creation that he created by by his hand and for his will, when we said we don't want to do that anymore and we turned around and said we're not following that, he said I'm going to leave a way for you to be redeemed and reconciled to me. That same God chases us. In verse number 17, he is before all things and by him all things consist where they are held together. And He is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning of the firstborn of the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence or he might have first place in everything. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. So he is redeeming everything by holding everything together. The reason we're not flying off into space today is because of this term that we've given the name to called gravity. But the reason gravity exists is because God said, hey, I want gravity to exist. If he doesn't want gravity to exist, guess what happens? We all start floating up like Willy Wonka, like we just drank fizzy lifting drinks in Willy Wonka. <laughs> and if this roof were out here, we would just continue to just drift off into space. It is by him that all things consist. Several years ago, Dr. Lee Chestnut wrote this book called The Atom Speaks. In this book, he quoted top physicists and how they are all still confused at how the atoms, like the, 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 the atomic matter that we're all made up of, holds together. You see, the nucleus of the atom contains these positively charged uh, pieces. And help me out, what are the positively charged pieces of the atoms? Protons. All right. Some of you are some of you are really smart here. Okay. Uh, these positively charged pieces are called protons. And protons, if you put them together, if they're both positively charged, guess what happens? They want to fly apart. It's like a magnet. If you take positive sides of both magnets and put them together, they they they, they resist one another. And and so what all of these uh, all of these uh, all these physicists say that even though these protons exist in all these atoms, they should, when you hold them up, they should repel one another just like magnets. But physicists all over the world have said, and they've had to come to this conclusion: they cannot scientifically explain why atoms hold together. They say that there is some force. Some force that's there that is causing these atoms to hold together that's stronger than the electromagnetic force that's there between the protons. Right now, all we know about electromagnetic energy, every atom should just fly apart. But instead, this force is holding them together. And physicists don't even know what to call this. So guess what they call it? The stronger force. Now, all you Star Wars nerds that are sitting here thinking, yeah, lightsabers and Yoda and all this stuff like that, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about these things that hold everything together. We still can't, with our own minds, explain it. That's interesting, isn't it? It's obvious that there's something holding it together that we haven't figured out, that current knowledge and scientific advancement can't explain. And in the very same way, God is holding all of history. He's holding the church. He's holding your life together and keeping everything from unraveling. In the very same way. Why? Because in him and by him all things consist or all things are held together. He's reconciling and he's redeeming everything by holding it all together. No matter how much we push it apart. No matter how many times we try, to just, we try to pull apart from everything. He is bringing it back together. It's a term that we call reconciliation. And we see reconciliation in verse 20. Pick up there. And having made peace through the blood of his cross and by him to reconcile all things unto himself... Remember, we're part of all things, right? So Jesus is right now working to reconcile you and me, our enemies, our friends, our family, all nations to him. And I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So here's the thing, when you and I were the protons and sin tried to unravel everything, Jesus stepped in to redeem and reconcile all of creation back to himself, back to relationship with him, and back to hope in the gospel. That's the goodness of God. That's the amazing grace that we open singing about this morning, isn't it, church? That while we were trying to unravel everything through sin, Jesus was working to reconcile and bring everything back together through grace. That's why we worship him. That's why we are so astounded by his grace. And church, I don't know about you, but we need to be more astounded. We need to stop being used to what he's done for us. Come back to the first things and say, man, without him I was lost and undone. I was, like it says in verse number 21, and you, you, point a finger at you, you, me, I was alienated. I was... At enmity with God, I was pulling away, trying to unravel myself through sin. Yet Jesus in his grace reconciles me to God. So these are three truths. That Jesus is God. That Jesus has created us by him and for him. And that Jesus is reconciling us to him. Right now, he's still doing that work of reconciliation. So three points that we can pull from this as well. Paul lays out this argument for why Jesus should have no equal. That no one and nothing should stand before or beside Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, Jesus is first. Point number one, Jesus is first. He's the creator of everything. He's the prototype. He's the firstborn. He's the template on which everything was made and the one for whom it was made. The point is that Jesus cannot just be considered one of the many beautiful things that God has created in this world. Jesus is not just one of the other cool things that you have in your life. He's not one of the other awesome things that you put into your self-help Shelf and say, hey, Jesus is one of those options. Jesus is it. Jesus is first. And then here's the gospel point, that Jesus went first. Jesus is first. And because he was God, when we began to pull away through sin, he should have and could have said, I'm done. I'm gonna move on. But God pursues a relationship with us. Even when everything about us was fighting against him, like those negatively charged atoms, he came And he voluntarily, because he's the firstborn of creation, because he's the only one who could do it, he voluntarily went to a brutal and a bloody cross where he, as God, was tortured by his creation, humiliated at the very hands that he formed from the dust and clay so he could buy back and redeem us and reconcile us to him. Jesus is not just a beautiful thing we add to our life. Jesus is the beautiful Savior by which we only have life. In what other story, what other philosophy, what other faith system do you find this? That God would reach down to man. That a holy and righteous God would reach down to a broken humanity that broke it themselves. You see, he could have and should have just wiped the slate clean. Like done some big cosmic reboot with us. Because the universe is a big place, right? He could have just said, hey, we're going to start all this over again in some other solar system, in some other other planet, and we're going to see if that creation gets it right. Forget earth. He didn't do that. He pursued us. He pursued me. He gave us a second chance. He gave us the gospel. He gave us his word. He gave us every landmark and road mark to point to grace. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, there to rescue me from danger, and he interposed his precious blood. And so since Jesus is first, and since he went first through his sacrifice, our only response should be that we put him first. And that's the third point, that Jesus should be put first. We should put Jesus first in our lives. We need to put him first in our church. We need to put him first in our homes, in our jobs, in everything. You see, because this, this God can never just be one on a list of other gods. Because he's in a class all by himself. He is God and there are no other gods. We can make gods. We can create them in our image. We can give all things these, these godlike statuses, but they're not gods. Only God is God. No one, nothing, can come beside or before Jesus. See, Jesus is not just someone you put on a list of other priorities, of things that you love. See, we expect this in marriage, don't we? We expect this in marriage. It's kind of like this. If I were to bring, bring my wife, Stacy, we've been married happily. We've been married for, what, 17 years now? Happily for all 17, all right? You want to know why we've been happy? Because I've never done this, what I'm getting ready to explain. All right. What if I were to take Stacy out to a nice romantic dinner, sit down, and I pull out this piece of paper, and on it is just a list of women's names. And she looks at me and says, "What in the world is this?" She goes, "This is," and I'll tell you, this is my list of women that I love. And I just wanted to tell you, baby, after 17 years, you're still on it. You want to know how that's never happened? I'm still breathing. I'm still here. You know how I would, if I just say, okay, i got to gain this back. You know what, baby? You're not just on that list. You're at the top of it. She's going to say, can I keep this list? And you know, she's actually sweetly going to look at me. She goes, let me tell you where you can put that little <laughs> list of yours. She's going to tear it up say, there better not be no list, right? Guys, would you ever try something that stupid? Do you have a list? I'm not, that's a whole nother message right there, buddy. It's a whole nother message, right? How much more so with Christ? This is what we're saying. When we hold things before and beside Jesus, we're saying, Jesus, on my list of saviors, on my list of hope, you're on that list, man. And we might even feel cool by saying you're at the top of that list. But here's what, here's what the Bible says. There can't be a list. Your list is Jesus. Church, our list is Jesus. When it comes to our foundation, when it comes to our hope, when it comes to our fuel, when it comes to our power, It's it. It's one trick. There is no plan B. It's Jesus. He can never just be an important commitment in your life. He's not just an accessory that I add into my life. He's the main course that fully satisfies, and I no longer need a side dish because I'm fully satisfied by the main course. So that leaves us as we close this morning with three questions that were posed, three challenges that were posed by this powerful piece of scripture this morning. Question number one is, is Jesus important or is he just first? Is Jesus just important or is he first in my life? Verse number 18 says, in all things, he is to be preeminent. In all things, he is to have first place. That, that phrase, all things there, in Bible college, seminary, whatever you want to talk about, I learned the deeper meaning of the word all. All means all, and that's all all means. So all things, he has to be preeminent in my life. A lot of people don't have a problem amening the truth that Jesus is preeminent in this church. People will amen that. They'll shout for that in a good Bible-believing church. But here's the thing, church. I want to challenge us with this today. What's true in our theology needs to be true in our lives. Let's say that again. What's true in your theology had better be true in your life. Because that's why so many people look at church today and say, that's just a bunch of hypocrites. Because we've settled for thinking that our theology being right means that my life doesn't have to be. That we'll buckle down on our theology, say, in my church, I want my theology to stay the same, but our life through the week can just drift off to wherever it needs to go. If it's true in my theology, it needs to be true in my life too. If Jesus is first in my life, then he won't just merely be important. Remember that list of women that I've never shown to Stacy. By the way, I don't have a list, babe. I don't have a list. I just want to let you know that. Here's how it should work, really. If I want Stacey to be preeminent in my life, and I want her to know that, I'm going to hand Stacy a piece of paper with her name on it and say, babe, here's my list of women that I love. You fill it out with the rest. And that's exactly what preeminence means to us in the church today, too. We hand Jesus the list and say, here, Jesus, you're my Savior. You're my Savior. You tell me what else is important. The second question is this, what gets my first and what gets my best? If Jesus is just important, if Jesus is just merely important, then what gets my first and best? Because you've just said Jesus is important, but he's one of the many important things. That means that my first and best is just going to be transitional. I, I can come and go with what's going to get my first and my best. Preeminent means first in my heart, first in my affections, the one that I love most and more than anything, first place in my obedience. That what he wants will be the first consideration in anything I do and first place in my priorities. That his agenda will rule my life. And it looks a little bit like this. Y'all have heard about the three T's of priorities, right? The three priorities. <laughs> you get it? Some of you will get it at lunchtime. All right. Three T's. When Jesus has priority, he needs to have number one in my time. He needs to have number one in my time, realizing that the days I have, the time I have, is because he's given it to me, and he's the one who has created that for me. Does Jesus get the first and best of my time? Do we spend more time teaching our kids how to throw a curveball or shoot a free throw than we do teaching them about Jesus? Do we spend more time trying to figure out how to climb the corporate ladder or get more likes on social media than we do by strategizing how we can get the gospel to the nations? Do we spend more time trying to convince someone of our political views being right than we do declaring that it's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that this broken humanity can be reconciled and made right before God? You see, of all of your weekly commitments, of all the weekly commitments that you have, and if you're like our family, you got commitments coming out the wazoo, man. They're everywhere. you got commitments all over the place. But of all your weekly commitments, your commitments to the kingdom of God, to His church, Are they the first to go when there's a crunch? The second T is our talents. There's a lot of talented people in our church. There are a lot of talented people in the kingdom of God. But too many of us have forgotten that the reason God gave us our talents is to leverage them for the kingdom work of seeing the gospel go forth. What talents has God given you that you can leverage for the gospel to go forth? Your job is a mission field. Your job was not just given to you so you can have a livelihood and pay the bills. Your job was given to you as a mission field to go into and take the gospel to that place. And then use those financial benefits first and foremost for the glory of God. And that's what leads into that third priority. Your treasure. I'm not just talking about the tithe. That's like basic entry-level stuff. Okay? That's like basic entry-level obedience. That's like JV. Now let's go varsity for a minute. When he gets your first and best, that means that I'll settle with good enough in other aspects of my life so that Jesus and his work can have first and best. You see, we do that. Settle for good enough so that we can have first and best in some areas, right? The first official date that I went on with Stacy when she finally (laughs) agreed to go out with me, I wanted it to be like really special because we'd been working in the, youth ministry together for a long time, so we'd eaten a lot of meals together, but I wanted, to, I wanted to take her somewhere that didn't have a drive-through window, all right? And I was like, you know, just starting out, I, I think I had just gotten my apartment, so money was really, really tight, so for about two weeks, I just ate ramen noodles, and I ate tuna out of a can to try to, you know, just cut back so that I could afford to take her to this really nice place, and that's where I gave her the list. No, I'm just teasing. Um, <laughs> I'm just teasing, but you know what? I settled with good enough for a couple of weeks, so I could have the best at this one point. And everybody's like, oh, you are so romantic. And my wife is sitting there thinking, Where was that, where's that guy at now, right? <laughs> but when it comes to Jesus having our first and best, when it comes to our treasure, we'll settle with good enough in some things in order to give Jesus the first and best of what we have. But here's what we do. We usually do it in reverse. I'll take the first and best of what I can get, and then I'll give Jesus good enough out of what's left over. You know what I'm talking about. After I live in the house that I want to live in, after I have the car that I want to make sure everybody sees me have, after I get the clothes that I have, after I put my kids through the college that they go to, all those are wonderful things, and you may be providing well for your family, but what it leads us to is to say this. If we're so strapped and we're so pushed to the limits there, we're left giving God the leftovers. Jesus is best and first. Is Jesus getting my first investor is he getting my good enough? And I'm gonna give you this one illustration right before we close. If you have breakfast, I don't know what you like for what you like to eat for breakfast in our kids' Sunday school. We were talking about breakfast with Jesus this morning, and they were talking about the different dishes that we eat for breakfast, and Jesus served the disciples a breakfast of fish and bread, and the kids were like, ew, fish for breakfast, that's gross, you know, it's nasty. Where's the donuts? Where's the, all that. But my favorite breakfast is protein packed. I like eggs and bacon. Anybody with me? Oh, yeah, all right. There's some safe people out here. right, you uh, granola people. You just need to get saved. That's what you need to do. But consider this plate of bacon and eggs. I mean, it's keto friendly, Whole30 friendly, South Beach diet friendly. It's awesome. You can have that, man. But consider this. Both a chicken and a pig brought you that dinner or brought you that meal, right? But there's a difference between the chicken and the pig. The chicken made a contribution, but the pig went all in. (laughs) Right? For the chicken, it was just a transaction. Here you go, sir, I'll see you tomorrow. For the pig was fundamentally changed forever so you could have that meal. So what in the world are you talking about? I'm saying this, that when Jesus is preeminent in the church, there ain't no chickens. It's all pigs. Some of you, it's really hitting deep, isn't it? But seriously, he wants an all-in kind of faith. He wants an all-in kind of faith. When Jesus is preeminent in the church, I'm going to take it one step further. This is ridiculous, but this church becomes a pigsty. All right? But in all seriousness, when Jesus is preeminent in the church, it's full of a congregation that holds nothing back. That we don't look at our faith as just a series of transactions with God. That my entire life is sustained and fueled and provided and purposed for him. I'm all in. Here's my life, Lord. Take it, break it, spill it out wherever you want it. Here's my church, God. Take it, break it, rearrange it, spill it out whatever way you want it. And as we close out that, this morning, that's the question. Am I listening to and am I obeying Jesus Christ? You see, the first century church was used to do some amazing things. Turn the world upside down. But it was marked by one thing. You had a group of people who listened to the Holy Spirit and did what he said. 59 times in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit shows up. And does amazing things. But why? the reason he showed up was because the church said, here we are, God. We'll do whatever you say. No questions asked. And the key that unlocked God's work was the obedience of the church. And you may be sitting here right now looking at all the reasons and the excuses for why God shouldn't use little old you. Why God can't do great things through little old Graceway Baptist Church. But I want to tell you this, if you keep looking at the excuses and you keep looking at the reasons for why it shouldn't happen, you're always going to get exactly what you're expecting. But if you look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the sky is the limit. God can do more with one little act of obedience than he can do with all of the talented people in the world combined. And that's what happened with Philip. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, I want you to take the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the world. But by Acts chapter 8, they still hadn't gotten outside of Jerusalem's city limits. The apostles had not obeyed until the Holy Spirit literally picked Philip up and planted him in Samaria and said, look at that man over there from Ethiopia. Go talk to him. And so Philip obeys the Holy Spirit and goes and talks to the Ethiopian eunuch, which the eunuch basically means that he was a powerful man in the courts back in Ethiopia in the African continent. And that carrying the gospel to that one man, history tells us this, it's recorded, that that one man went back to the courts of Ethiopia, spread the gospel there, and that the gospel began to spread like a wildfire through Africa. Here's the thing I'm getting at. In 2019, gospel work is still being done in the continent of Africa because Philip was willing to listen to the Holy Spirit and talk to one man about the gospel. Don't say that Jesus can't do anything with little old you. Don't say that Jesus can't do anything with little old Graceway Baptist Church or that God's done with Graceway Baptist Church. or We're just holding on for dear life because if that's the case, why are we here? Because God is calling us into a new chapter and he's got a vision for us to carry the gospel forth in this community and in this world. And I, for one, am ready to get that started. I'm ready to get that started let me tell you what that looks like. 35 years ago, that kind of obedient faith, over 35 years ago, there was a family that was willing to come to Lexington with nothing but a call in Jesus. And through faithfulness, this church named Lexington Baptist Temple was formed in the basement of a house. And as the gospel was preached and the spirit was obeyed, God began to save souls and the church began to kind of rise up from the ashes. And God did some amazing things and is still doing some amazing things because just a little bit over a year ago, that same church sat in a sanctuary and said, we sense God calling us into a new thing. And was it easy? Was it comfortable? No. But called us to relaunch and replant as Graceway Baptist Church with the same thing. Nothing else but a call and a purpose and Jesus Christ and some upholstered chairs. That is first-generation, Jesus-only kind of faith. And you might be sitting here, and I'm saying the same thing. I wake up sometimes in the mornings, and I say, what are you doing, God? What are you going to do? What's going to come of all of this? We've made this decision. We've stepped out here. Here's where we are. What are you going to do with it? And I think what he's been wanting from us collectively for a while is to respond to this message. Is Jesus going to be first, or is he just going to be important? Is Jesus going to get my first and my best, or is he just going to get my good enough? And am I going to listen to and obey what the Holy Spirit has to say? And church, that's the challenge before us today. As a replanting church in a new community, we need to sit down with Jesus and say, all right, Jesus, what do you want? We've done it to this point. Let's continue to do that. And so as everyone bows their heads and close their eyes and we go to this time of response and decision, I want to ask you this. How do you personally respond to this question? Because the church as a whole can't respond unless we individually as believers that compile the church respond to these.